around Christmas. Yeah, I guess the kind of main questions that I was guided by um, are like, what does it mean to be exhausted during Advent, which is um, a season of joy and anticipation? Uh, what does it mean to sit with deep grief um, from the level of maybe our own families um, and expectations um, to our collective horror at the ongoing massacres in Palestine, um, at the climate crisis, uh, all these things that sit heavy on our hearts at the same time as we're waiting with joyful anticipation for the coming of the person we believe to be our king. Um, if Christmas is a celebration of rightness entering the world, what do we do with the fact that the world feels really deeply wrong? Uh, the cool thing about belonging to like a very old tradition is that like there are no really new questions. Um, people have been asking this for a long time. Um, so I went to look at the lectionary readings for today, see if they had any answers, and they were all very beautiful, um, but I decided to ignore them. Um, <laughs> um, because what's really been sitting on my heart is the story of Simeon and Anna which is a story found right at the start of Luke's Gospel. So here, Jesus is extremely newborn, he's like probably younger than two weeks old, um, and as the Mosaic Law sets out, um, he has to be taken to the Temple at Jerusalem because he's the firstborn son, um, so he gets presented. Um, so this is a reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 39. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And inspired by the Spirit, he came to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God, and said, Lord, now let us now thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to thy people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that thoughts um, out of many hearts may be revealed. And there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Panuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years from her virginity and as a widow until um, she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she gave thanks to God and spoke of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. And when Mary and Joseph had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a lot going on here, but I want to pick out um, a few particular threads. Um, I will preface this by saying my methodolog methodological approach is just like, read the Bible and then talk about interesting things. Um, really <laughs> um, so for all of you taking notes, um, <laughs> this is not a three point sermon. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, um, but my hope is that we can build off some of the things that Daniel was talking about last week um, and think about the really serious joy of Advent um, in the context of waiting, exhaustion, horror, or maybe just not really feeling it. So, when, when I was a kid, as I think is probably the case for many, Christmas was the most magical time in the world. My family and I would set up the tree 
and have our own little family Christmas on Christmas Eve, um, have like a big picnic feast on the floor and unwrap our presents. And then on Christmas Day, we drive to visit my Oma and the Italian-German half of the family and spend a few days eating too much and then go spend New Year's with Mom's family in Sydney. Um, we had like carols in the park and rainbow lights and just went swimming every day and it was just magical. And then, like all of us, I grew up and it got complicated. <laughs> I've been really lucky in that most of my direct family has been really supportive of my transition. Um, but it still makes stuff really difficult um, with the rallies. And for a lot of my queer partner, Christmas is a period of loss and grief, um, of irreconcilability, of loneliness, of feeling like we have to make new traditions um, because the old ones um, didn't have space for us um, and all of that fullness. And I think because Christmas is such a time of tra traditions, um, things changing or being off around Christmas feel like they have particular weight. Um, and then when we think about what's happening globally, it's really hard not to despair or feel selfish for being safe and comfortable um, or to just not feel full of cheer. And so this is why I wanted to talk specifically about Simeon and Anna. Luke draws attention to the fact that both of these people are really old um, and they're also <laughs> very orthodox. Um, so they move around the quiet, like, devout, devout spaces of the temple and they listen closely to the word of God and they've been doing this for decades. Now, my Oma is pretty old, but she goes to Mass every day um, and kind of shuffles off across the car park to pray and picks up the flowers of the church and light candles in remembrance and to talk to people and to God. I picture Anna a little bit like her. Even though she only gets a few lines, I'm struck by Anna's persistence, how much joy and quiet staunchness she has in the rituals of her faith um, and in sharing it with other people. She's also one of um, only a handful of um, women prophets named in the Bible. And I love how generous and personal God is in his relationship with her. On the one day in history that the Son of God is going to be at her temple, she is not there because she can't be there all the time. But God whispers to her, like, go on up there. I think there's someone you're going to want to see. Um, he knows that she's got the eyes to see and the ears to hear what's really going on. And he also knows she won't be able to be quiet about it that her joy will spill forth to everyone she sees. As for Simeon, he's been told that he won't die until he sees Christ. Uh, this strikes me as being like a lot of God's promises, which is like very, very beautiful and also really hard work. <laughs> this is like a very massive thing to kind of carry around with you every day, tucked in close to your heart as you try and go about your daily business. It's, like glorious in that very kind of weighty like sense of the word but i can't imagine that it's an easy thing to carry especially as he gets older um, and still hasn't hasn't seen this child but when simeon finally sees jesus his response is this bone deep contentment now i can depart in peace he says he's ready to die because he doesn't need anything else to make his life complete there's a carol i love because i am a carol person um, called simeon's song um, and the words are, all creation will be redeemed. Now your servant can go in peace. I have seen the Lord. My eyes have seen joy beyond belief. I've seen the Messiah. Simeon is old and exhausted and in the midst of political chaos, but cradling this tiny baby close, what he feels is joy beyond belief. As I think of the beautiful Palestinian children who've been killed in these last months, I think of Herod and of Simeon. 
Jesus, too, was a Palestinian boy who narrowly avoided genocide. And Simeon knew just how precious and fragile this life was, how small this promised child, and how hard and sharp the world around him. He knew how Mary and Joseph would have to run and run to keep the promise of the world safe. And Jesus doesn't come to distract from any of this, to be a turning away. He comes straight into the dangerous, jagged midst of it, promising restoration from the ground up. To reuse Daniel's Bonhoeffer quote from last week, Jesus' um, sure-footed joy looks death in the eye and finds life precisely in it. And our own Scotty Reeve writes that um, in the midst of our grief, the invitation of Advent comes naively and suggests that maybe somehow in the midst of all this, we could end up more alive and not less. Our hearts could become softer, not harder. Our resolve for change could become deeper and not weaker. In the midst of our grief, we could end up more alive and not less. I think of Bethlehem as ground zero for this, for this joy of being a kind of puddle of light blooming and spreading across all nations, all people, and all the time. Critically, Simeon draws attention to the fact that this isn't just going to be the king of the Jews. Jesus is someone whose restoration will be global, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, more complete than just being an answer to the pressing political problems of the day. He's not just for the glory of the moment, not even really here to fix the not insignificant problem of Herod being a gunk and Judah being like a very tenuous nation state. As the book of Isaiah says, Jesus will have the government upon his shoulder and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase in his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so Christ entering the world is not just this God with a bird's eye view kind of hollering, be happy, um, down at us and ignoring the mess on the ground. It's a very embodied, gritty joy that sees the world as it is and speaks restoration and rightness anyway. So if we're trying to make this a two-point sermon, I guess point one would be that Jesus' joy speaks into our exhaustion, our horror, our broken reality, not over it. He speaks into our lives, not over them. And we can make a second related point here about unexpectedness. God's continual capacity to surprise us in the liminal, often aching, yearning spaces between Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, between birth and death. Because the thing that, another thing that I notice about Simeon and Anna's story is how often people in Jesus' earthly life fumble the ball. We're used to the disciples sometimes being kind of dopes in Jesus' adult ministry, but even as a child, people often seem to not really know what to do with him. This story from Luke comes just before Mary and Joseph accidentally leave their child behind at the temple, and they come back a day later and find him surrounded by these venerable teachers of the law, kind of looking at this precocious kid. And in Simeon and Anna's story, Mary is like constantly surprised by um, who people say her son is. She's extraordinarily faithful in the face of it. But like this is a woman who's got angels coming in and out of her door, and old men in temples who know what's going on with her family like more than she does. Um, and she's rolling with it, but it's a very odd like situation. After the scene in the temple, Luke notes that Jesus' mother kept all these things that people were saying about Jesus in her heart. And so I can just see her, this young mum, sitting and thinking over these things that people and angels and her son keep saying. Maybe, yeah, rocking him to sleep or like preparing, preparing a meal um, with a bit of a knot in her chest. 
This is a woman who has already run with her husband and child to another country to escape Herod's slaughter of Israel's sons, a woman of extraordinary faith, a young mom, an asylum seeker, someone who gave birth in a stable because there wasn't space anywhere else. Her story is joyous, but it's not uncomplicated. And we can see this complicated joy in how Christ comes. People with open eyes like Simeon and Anna can see pretty quickly how this child fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. But it's in quite a gritty way, and it like, comes with a bit of a letdown um, for people who are very wedded to the idea of Jesus as a literal king of a human nation. Like, the Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah and some of the other prophets have this flair to them. It's like very high church, God on a mountain, smells like incense sort of stuff. Um, and it talks about kings and freedom. And that's absolutely who Jesus comes to be. But because we have this extraordinary capacity for making God smaller than he actually is, um, people interpreted this in a very literal way. They were like, cool, king, freedom, he's going to be king of this nation. We'll be free of this particular political circumstance. And even in the way Jesus fulfills the prophecies about being from Nazareth, of being out of Egypt, of being of David's line. I mean, like, the reason he's of David's line is because Joseph is related to Solomon, and Solomon is the kid that David had with Bathsheba, which is, like, not the most, like, chill story in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, like, Jesus is from Egypt because Mary and Joseph had to, had to go seek asylum there, um, like, running away from a genocidal maniac. And so the way that these grand prophecies that have been written in texts and kept safe and passed down for generations, the way that they're actually embodied and fulfilled is in quite like a like gritty, scary, very normal way. And it feels a bit like heretical to be like, eh, grimy and scary. Um, but like that's actually where the glory is, that it that the reality of that situation. But it does put us kind of on the wrong foot um, if we thought we knew what was coming. Um, yeah, in, in one of Common Grace Australia's daily Advent devotionals, Joanna Hayes writes that there's a space between Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, and Emmanuel, he is with us, where all of the suffering, frustration, waiting, growth, and hope stands. Simeon had been told he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. We all have to die before we see him, unless he returns first. But what we're waiting for, him with us, together in a common home, should make the waiting worth it. I want to draw strength from Simeon and Anna's examples as I wait. This period of Advent is one of joyful anticipation, but it also represents the liminal space between Maranatha and Emmanuel. As Christians, we're pretty good at liminality, waiting, longing. Our two biggest, most central church seasons are seasons of this. And in fact, if you think about it, they're kind of the inverse of each other. We have Lent as a period of scarcity, of sacrifice, leading towards a death and then exploding into joy and rebirth. And Advent reminds us of joy and abundance, waiting, yearning, leading towards a, a joyous, fragile birth, which will eventually be a violent death on the cross, and then again, rebirth. So for us in Advent, this waiting is framed as, as a beautiful anticipation, because we know that it's, it's leading towards birth, leading towards a promise held in a fragile, tiny baby who is also God, and who bears the whole hope of the world. But it can also sometimes be a really painful waiting, as we say, God, like, when will this beautiful, fragile world stop being so broken? God, can't you see our pain? We are calling out to you, God, and he says, I hear you. 
Here is the answer to your prayers. Here is the Messiah. Joy beyond belief. Go in peace. And this isn't an uncomplicated peace. And it's not peace in the shape that we necessarily expected it. But as Scotty and Joanna's reflections both draw attention to, this is peace that spurs us on to love and good deeds in the situation that we're in. It's peace that reminds us of the goodness of our world and the goodness of our relationships. Peace that says, yes, there is restoration in the future that we can look forward to, but there's also restoration here, glimmering through the cracks in the veil. There's restoration we, we can work for right now, while still holding that we know the work has already been done. Restoration that we can cry over, returning to the cradle and the cross to pour out our hope and devastation. We hold, as Daniel Simon said last week, that the kingdom is already, but not yet. And there's a word for all of this. One word for holding to Christ's joy amid a clear-eyed seeing of the horror and brokenness of the world. For believing that Jesus speaks into our lives, not over them. For trusting and leaning into that unexpectedness, trying to open and reopen our eyes, letting go of our expectations of God and actually listening to what he's doing. A word for making peace with liminality and planting seeds while we exist in this in-between space. And that word is faith. In Hebrews 11, chapter 1, faith is defined as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In the messiness of our own lives, of our relationships and our world, we come together as a community of faith. Woven through ancient prophecy and wise old people and confused new parents, the story of Jesus is what we believe in, or want to believe in, or try to believe in. This is what we try and live out, as Christ's hands and feet, and it's where we can find ourselves together again. And so in this season, as we gather around a cradle, we look down on the light of the world, he's confounding, and he has joy beyond belief. He's the promise of restoration, someone to put our faith in. And so as we wait in that liminal space, the long middle of our lives here on earth, our hearts get softer, our resolve gets stronger, and we become more alive. Merry almost Christmas.